0: So last week was awful, actually. Israel was finally and completely conquered by Assyria. Its ruling class, its nobles and rich people, its priests, and most of the poorer class, the regular people, were deported and scattered across the known world. A remnant of poor remain in the land governed by Assyrians who have been themselves relocated here in Israel. Meanwhile, in Judah, around 729 BCE, about seven years before Israel is conquered, Hezekiah becomes co-regent with his father Ahaz. But he and his father definitely do not see eye to eye. Ahaz is terribly wicked and even sacrifices his own sons in the Valley of Hinnom. Hezekiah, on the other hand, has somehow been raised to be utterly faithful to Yahweh. We have no details at all about how this happens, but it surely comes through the influence of his mother, who is a daughter of someone named Zechariah, which is a name often given to a priest. So I'm just kind of wondering if she came from a priestly family and and passed that down to Hezekiah. In any event, Hezekiah is already in his late teens by the time Israel falls, so he definitely understands how high the stakes are when his father Ahaz dies a few years later, and he finally has the throne to himself at the age of 25. And Hezekiah is well aware of and probably already good friends with Isaiah who's been a thorn in the side of Ahaz for some years now. And for sure, Hezekiah heard Isaiah prophesy Israel's downfall before it ever happened. All the prophets will cover, from Joel to Obadiah, over a span of roughly 200 years, all of them have remarkably consistent messages. Here's a quick overview. The Lord will cleanse Israel and Judah of injustice and pride by allowing them to fall to their enemies. The Lord will also cleanse all the other nations of injustice and pride and will call them to account for harming Israel and Judah. Then the Lord will establish a perpetual reign of justice and peace and abundance and life and all of Israel will be regathered to Zion. All the people of all the nations of the world will stream to Zion to worship the Lord there. I put this little chart in the reference material section of the study guide a few weeks ago. Be sure this broad outline is cemented in your mind so you don't get lost in the events and the prophecies as we go along. This big picture gives us a framework for understanding how the pieces all fit together. The first part is where we are right now in the story. The Lord is cleansing Israel and Judah using the natural consequences of their own actions, which have been to ally themselves with these other nations and to commit idolatry. So this has been and is being accomplished for Israel while they are in exile. They are being cleansed but Judah is still more or less intact. These middle two involve the quote in that day and quote day of the Lord prophecies where the Lord comes in person to set everything right. That's when the second coming of Jesus happens. And the last one is what happens after the day of the Lord, after Jesus comes the second time, this overview of the message is something to bear in mind. You already have the rest of the pieces you need, an understanding of the creation story and how from that very moment, God's only goal has been to dwell with us and to commune with us in real relationship and to bless us. You know the story of Abraham and of the exodus and entry into the promised land of how God perceived his relationship with Israel as a marriage, of how Israel and Judah split in civil war after Solomon's death, and how persistently they followed idols and spurned Yahweh. You understand how that led to God divorcing himself from Israel, and yet still feeling such a tenderness and compassion for her, how God tried in so many ways to bless her and turn her back to him and how he promised to take her back even still. You understand pretzel time, how the past, present, and future all commingle. You now know how the geography of the promised land is almost like a whole character all by itself. You know the significance of the surrounding people like the Philistines, the Moabites, the Edomites, and the Arameans. And you know the really big players, the world powers of Egypt, Assyria, and now Babylonia. And now, with all this context, you are ready for biblical prophecy. You should be able to pick up any book of any of the prophets and understand the message being conveyed, even if it moves fluidly from time frame to time frame and from nation to nation. Looking at all of this, no wonder people typically do such a poor job of interpreting biblical prophecies, right? I don't think they do the work necessary to understand them in context. I am so proud of you for being willing to ramble through all these different places with me. Each one of these has been a stop along the way. And even if you missed a bunch of classes or started recently, I take care to give you the threads you need in each lesson. And some of these concepts should already be starting to look familiar. You have come a long way, baby, as they say. So let's shoulder our backpacks and dive into some of that prophecy. In Isaiah 14, Isaiah prophesies over Assyria and all the nations of the world, saying, I will crush the Assyrians on my land. Now, it's interesting that location On my land, it's consistent with the other prophecies, though, that the invaders from the north, which are generally called Assyrians in prophecy, will be attacking Jerusalem when the Lord comes. I will remove the Assyrian yoke from my people. This is my plan for the whole world. My hand is stretched out over all the nations. Who can thwart me? Against this backdrop, what do you think is the very first thing Hezekiah does when he finally gets to be king all by himself? Does he attack the surrounding nations like most of the other young kings have done? Does he get a few notches on his belt, make a few conquests, thumb his nose at Assyria? Nope. In the very first month of his very first year, he assembles all the priests and Levites he can find and throws open the doors of the temple and says, consecrate yourselves and consecrate this temple. Throw out anything that defiles it, anything offered to an idol. Purify this holy place once again. And so they do, and they do it in a hurry. Despite years of neglect and repeated ransacking, the priests and the Levites get the entire temple complex, altars and all, cleaned out and restored in just over two weeks. And the very next day, Hezekiah and all his officials, the city officials of Jerusalem, gather to make the very first sacrifices in the purified temple. It's been at least 100 years since King Joash did a similar cleansing, and even he became an idol worshiper towards the end. And if you go back before him, it's 200 years to get back to King Asa, who instituted reforms like this. What Hezekiah is doing is very, very radical. On this first day of worship in the temple, There is singing and trumpeting and psalms and so many burnt offerings that the priests can't do them all, and the Levites have to help. It says the Levites have been more conscientious about consecrating themselves than the priests have. So even though Levites aren't supposed to do the offerings, they are able to step in to help. Then King Hezekiah and his officials and the other leaders decide the whole country needs to have a big Passover celebration. There's just one problem. The time for Passover was last month. They missed it for this year. Well, Hezekiah doesn't want to wait a whole year. It seems important and it seems like the time is now for the retelling of the Exodus story and how the Lord chose his people and brought them out of slavery with a mighty hand and with grand provision. The people of Judah need to hear this message now. They need a Passover right now. So King Hezekiah and his advisors set a special date for this first Passover, one month later than usual, and they send invitations throughout the entire land, including what used to be Israel. You know that all the northern tribes and the tribes east of the Jordan are gone now, exiled by the Assyrians or made into serfs. But the few who are allowed to remain, eking out a living under Assyrian rule, still identify in their hearts, of course, as being part of Israel, even though there is no Israel anymore. And King Hezekiah is intent on offering a hand of fellowship to all of God's people that he can find. So he writes letters and sends messengers from Jerusalem up into the lands of Ephraim, Manasseh, Zebulun, and Asher. Mostly the messengers get laughed at bitterly, but a few people actually take Hezekiah up on the invitation. And so, on the appointed day, a very large crowd of people from both Judah and what used to be Israel gather in Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. Remember that up to now, only the temple has been cleaned out. The city of Jerusalem still had idols on every street corner. So the people who gathered go through all of Jerusalem and uproot all the altars to all the idols, and they throw them into the Kidron Valley, which runs between Jerusalem and the Mount of Olives on the east. You have to lean your head over to the left to read this map, but it's a topographical map of Jerusalem. I've oriented it so north is towards the top. And here's something you need to know. Right now, in our modern times, if you ask someone where Mount Zion is, they're going to point to this place on the map. But the temple is actually over here. As far as the Bible is concerned, the name Zion is synonymous with wherever the temple is, wherever God dwells, since the temple is Here on this mountain marked as Moriah on this map, this mountain is, for biblical purposes, Mount Zion. It is called Temple Mount today, and in the Bible, it is called Mount Zion. It's confusing, I know. What we call Mount Zion today is not the Mount Zion the Bible talks about. Anyway, down here to the south is the Valley of Hinnom. That we've, we've talked about that being used historically for child sacrifice and the worst sort of idol worship. That's where Hezekiah's father, Ahaz, would have sacrificed Hezekiah's brothers. And over here, just east of Mount Zion, where the temple is, is the Kidron Valley. It runs in between Mount Zion and the Mount of Olives. The Kidron Valley is where all the junk. All these idols from all over Jerusalem are thrown. In fact, this isn't the first time the Kidron Valley has been used for this purpose. This is exactly the same place King Asa threw the pieces of his grandmother's Asherah pole 200 years ago. We'll run across the Kidron Valley from time to time, and it's helpful to know its significance. So when you hear Kidron Valley, think broken idols. When you hear Valley of Hinnom, think idol worship and child sacrifice. So after the crowds run through Jerusalem, tearing down the idol altars and throwing them into the Kidron Valley, they begin the traditional celebration of Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. We'll not go into the details of what that entails. If you missed that part of our gentle ramble, you can find it in class 20. What you may not remember, though, is that in addition to the sacrifices brought by the king and the priests for the nation as a whole, each household also brings various sacrifices and the head of the household does the sacrificing himself and then gives the prepared animal or grains or whatever to the priest for burning on the altar. But the head of the household must be ritually clean himself before doing the sacrifices. And there's like a process for that. It takes time from a few hours to a week or more, depending on the circumstances. And of course, the people are completely out of practice. So tons of folks show up with sacrifices, but forget to consecrate themselves. Makes me think of Austin City Limits, the ACL festival um, a, a couple of weeks ago, where everybody was supposed to bring their vaccination cards, and a lot of people show up without them. So it's just like that. Tons of people not reading their email. So even some of the priests forget. It could have been a huge fiasco, but the Levites step in. They're sort of a caretaker class for the temple and the holy things. And apparently, as a clan, the Levites have taken more care to preserve the old ways. And enough, Levites have already consecrated themselves that, once again, they're able to step in and do the sacrifices for the people who are unprepared. With that problem averted, there's immediately another problem. Part of the whole ritual is actually eating all this food, the pre-seat part of it, but a lot of it is supposed to be eaten by the households who bring it. It's like a great big barbecue of thanksgiving to the Lord, but you have to have consecrated yourself in order to eat. And most of the people who come from what used to be Israel had no idea they needed to consecrate themselves. And Hezekiah has obviously not thought to put that in info in his invitation to them. So this seems to be an unsurmountable problem. The Levites can't step in here. The whole celebration is about to come to a grinding halt. And here is where we find out that Hezekiah knows the Lord. He's not just following the guidelines from the law of Moses. He actually understands what is important to the Lord. And so King Hezekiah stands before the Lord and the people and pray. "O Lord, you who are good, may you atone for everyone who has prepared his heart to seek you, even if they are not clean according to the rules. And the Lord accepts his prayer and accepts the people and their sacrifices. And so the king and the priests and the Levites and the people from Judah and the people who have traveled down from Israel all sing and feast and praise the Lord, rejoicing with the Lord for seven days, rejoicing with the Lord for seven days. King Hezekiah and his officials provide more and more bulls and sheep for the sacrifices. More priests consecrate themselves and everyone rejoices together, including specifically in the passage, it says, including the aliens, the foreigners, and the immigrants among them, both those from Israel and those living in Judah. And at the end of the seven days, Everyone decides, let's do seven more days. And it says their prayer and rejoicing reach to heaven. At the end of the second week, the people who traveled down from Israel... Go back through the towns of Judah, smashing all the idols and altars and Asherah poles in the countryside, just like they've already done in Jerusalem itself. They destroy all the high places in Benjamin and Judah, and then destroy all of them in Ephraim and Manasseh. And then they return to their homes. So let's talk about the Philistines. We haven't heard from them in a while. Back when Tiglath Pileser of Assyria attacked Israel, When Pekah was king, the Philistines were also attacked. It's not been that long, only about 25 years since that first major Assyrian attack. That's when the first wave of Israelites and presumably Philistines were deported to Assyria. But unlike Israel, the Philistines have continued to hang on. Israel has fallen and the Philistines know they've got to get some help quick before the Assyrians come back and finish them off. Since the only other major world power in the region is Egypt, that's where the Philistines turn for help. So remember how King Hoshea, the last king of Israel, paid protection money to Pharaoh of in Egypt, and it didn't do him any good because Egypt itself was dissolving into smaller sub-kingdoms at the time. They were like he was in the middle of civil wars. He He couldn't help out. Well, things have changed in Egypt in the last few years. The same year Hezekiah comes to the throne in Judah, Egypt's internal struggles resolve. Egypt is now ruled by pharaohs who come from the region of Cush, which is southeast of what we'd call Egypt today. But during this time, it was a major part of the Egyptian empire. So when you read in Isaiah about Egypt and Cush, they're basically interchangeable terms, just differences in ethnicity ethnicity and political um, groupings within Egypt. Anyway, with a more stable Egypt in the picture, the Philistines want to ally with Egypt against Assyria. And of course, the people in Judah are also terrified that Assyria will come and do to them what was done to Israel. So I suspect the people of Judah are putting intense pressure on Hezekiah to join the Philistine Egyptian alliance. So this all happens within one or two years of Hezekiah ascending to the throne. He's still really young. He's in his 20s. So what should Hezekiah do? It seems to me that Hezekiah needs to be relying on the Lord God for protection, not Egypt, right? I bet the Lord has something to say to Hezekiah about this state of affairs, don't you? And sure enough, there are two whole chapters in Isaiah, chapters 18 and 19, devoted to what the Lord has to say about Egypt and Cush. Woe to Cush, a people tall and smooth-skinned, feared all over the world. I will prune them and leave them to birds of prey. In that day, they will bring gifts to Mount Zion. Notice the reference to the end times. Then in chapter 19, the Lord talks about Egypt. I will stir up Egyptian against Egyptian, kingdom against kingdom. I will hand them over to a cruel king. In that day, Judah will bring terror to Egypt because of what the Lord plans. So we know that in Isaiah's time, Egypt has just gone through civil unrest, literally kingdom against kingdom. Is the new Cushite Pharaoh the cruel king? It's hard to tell. The phrase in that day makes me think this is probably an end time prophecy, but in the end times, Israel and Judah are reunited as Israel. So the reference to Judah is a little puzzling. Mm, I don't know. This one we might need a little more uh, clarification on as we go along. So Isaiah goes on to say, in that day, five cities in Egypt all will all speak the language of Canaan and swear allegiance to the Lord of hosts. There will be an altar to Yahweh in the center of Egypt and a monument to Yahweh on the border. And when Egypt cries out because of their oppressors, Yahweh will send them a savior. That word can also mean defender or rescuer. It's all the same word. Egypt cries out, Yahweh sends them a savior, a rescuer, a defender. In that day, Yahweh will strike Egypt with a plague, and it will cause them to turn to the Lord for healing, and Yahweh will heal them. Yahweh and the Egyptians will come to know each other, and the Egyptians will make sacrifices and worship him. Now, this is turning the Exodus story on its head, isn't it? This is what should have happened when the Lord struck Egypt with the 10 plagues long ago. And there will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria. I think I've pointed out that highway language before. Here it is again, a highway from Egypt to Assyria. In that day, The Egyptians, the Assyrians, and Israel will all worship Yahweh together. Wow. I mean, just wow. I didn't see that coming. Did you? The Lord of hosts will bless them, saying, Blessed be Egypt, my people, Assyria, my handiwork, and Israel, my inheritance. Even that's that's out of Isaiah 1925. This just like totally blows my mind, given all the context that we've got. Even Egypt and Assyria are blessed by the Lord and belong to the Lord. All of us will know the Lord and be blessed. That has been the plan from the beginning. We noticed last week that the... um, political relationships between Egypt, Assyria, and Israel change. We know that Assyria is going to fall to the Babylonians. Hasn't happened yet, but it's be- Babylon is starting to rise in power. So we know that we can look at our maps right now. And we can see there is no such thing as Assyria with an A. But clearly there's a political power in that region a collection of nations. Will Assyria become a nation by that name again? I have no idea. But for the purposes of these prophecies, we have to assume that the term Assyria covers whatever nations or political entity is Israel's northern enemy. For Hezekiah, of course, this means that Egypt and Assyria may look big and scary, may actually be big and scary, but the lord is in control here and hezekiah definitely should not be relying on either one of them for protection right but it's so tempting the philistines have made an alliance with egypt and have stopped paying tribute to assyria so you know assyria is going to attack judah is on the precipice surely the Lord is going to send the prophet Isaiah to King Hezekiah with an urgent message. And he does. The story is in Isaiah chapter 20. The Lord tells Isaiah to strip naked. Take off the sackcloth you're already wearing, Isaiah. Even take off your sandals and go butt naked for three years and preach this message. Just as I am naked and barefoot, so will Egypt and Cush be. The king of Assyria will lead captives from Egypt and Cush, bare naked and shamed. In that day, the people living on the coast, presumably the Philistines, that's like another name for Philistines, will say, look what happened to those we relied on. How can we escape if even they have come to this? And there's that key phrase in time frame phrase again, in that day. This seems to be an example of Isaiah's present and future blending together, where the situation in the end times may closely mirror the situation um, Hezekiah, Egypt, Assyria, and the Philistines find themselves in now, or perhaps in this case, in that day, simply means the day the Assyrians attack Egypt. Either way, The message to us here in the living in the end times is the same as that to Hezekiah. Don't rely on any other power except Yahweh. Well, Israel goes around naked for three years trying to keep Hezekiah and the people of Judah from relying on Egypt. In the very first year, when the Philistines stopped paying tribute The Assyrian king Sargon II attacks the Philistine city-state of Ashdod. According to inscriptions Sargon made of the campaign, the Kushite pharaoh in Egypt betrays the Philistine king of Ashdod out of fear of of the Assyrians. So Egypt doesn't show up. And thus Ashdod falls to Assyria. So this is a crazy story, right? Not covered in your average Sunday school class, but it is extremely revealing. No pun intended. I just realized that I did not mean that as a pun. We are seeing the heart of the Lord in clearer and clearer ways. We'll try to put it all together in our breakout groups right now. All right. Turn your mics on and let's talk about this. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I hope you had good discussions. The because uh, when I was you know any when I'm doing the study guide questions for you, what I'm looking at is where in the story is there something that seems contradictory with somewhere else in scripture, or something that we stumble over, or that people clobber us with all the time. Those are the things that end up in the study guide for you. And so this time, the whole idea was wait a minute. Hezekiah did everything wrong. (laughs) The people did everything wrong. They didn't follow the rules. What is the deal? And, and of course I remember, and, and I, and I highlighted for you in um, the first question that the exact specific response of the Lord as recorded in second Chronicles 30, 20 was, and the Lord heard Hezekiah and healed the people. And so the first question was, what does that tell us about how the Lord is viewing this situation? About how the Lord is doing what? Is viewing this situation. Oh, well, Erica and Ellen and Marlene had some great insights. Uh, One of which was that Hezekiah, uh, was following the heart of the Lord rather than these rules. Yeah, yeah, that's right.
1: And, and God understood, I think, the ignorance, that a lot of this came out of ignorance. Um, but God looked at the heart of everybody involved. And that was more important than following ritual. Exactly.
0: Right.
2: Yeah, that, that, our group said that too, that instead of following the law, you know, that they weren't so concerned about the law itself. They were, they were more concerned with uh, doing, you know, the right thing to reinstate the situation.
0: That's right. I mean, if you think of it in terms of the whole, like I said uh, earlier in the slides was, if God's whole overarching point of the whole thing is to be with us, then every single time we actually try to be with the Lord, the Lord seems to find a way to make that happen. Rules are no rules, right? We have seen that over and over and over. And that, I think, I think people who cast other people out of fellowship in their churches need to think about this amen right yeah and this is fundamental we're not talking cherry picking a verse here this is like the overarching big thing god's trying to accomplish
1: yeah well i i think i think you're right because we see that here we've seen it throughout the story so far in the in the hebrew bible and then jesus pounds this point home and then we see it again in Paul's writing. And um, and so it wasn't just the Jews that were hyper-focusing on the niggly details of the law without putting their heart in there.
0: But we're doing it still today. I would not want to be standing before the throne of God. And have God say, Why did you cast my beloved out? And my only response be, Well, Leviticus 18 said,
1: <laughs> Yeah.
0: <laughs> that just didn't even sound smart to me. <laughs>
1: I was just doing what you said. Well, you didn't hear everything I said, obviously.
0: You you misinterpreted.
3: As my daughter is, as my daughter is fond to say, and where is that in the red letters? Yeah. <laughs> so at the end
0: of seven days. Oh, and I did want to point out that the word the Lord used for how He made the it okay with the people was he healed them. He healed them. At the end of, so this is second question. At the end of seven days, the people decide to continue to celebrate for seven more days. Why does the Lord overlook all of these serious and intentional infractions of the law, which you all have pretty much answered, right? You know, you just said. Our, our answer to that was C, question one. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> It's kind of the same question. Okay. So let's move on. uh Go ahead. Well, I think part of it is, you know,
2: yes, it does go back to question one, but the thing is, is the, the, their intention uh, you know, the people's intention to continue was um, and so was, and to do to do whatever they were doing was because they wanted to celebrate. They wanted to glorify God and they were continuing to um, relearn the whole process so um it wasn't like they'd been schooled in it for the last 200 years. And when has the Lord ever
0: turned down a party with us? Exactly.
1: Yeah, yeah I mentioned that in our group a former pastor of mine used to frequently say God loves a party. Yeah. I mean, the first the first miracle recorded that Jesus did was turning water into wine at a wedding. Great point. And feasts and celebrations are just throughout the Bible.
0: Yep. Absolutely. All right. We also talked about how, oh, sorry, Hezekiah. (laughs) He did. He was one of the first kings to finally turn to God. And because God had been longing for that, God met him where he was at. And so it was that kindness of finally someone gets it to (laughs) seek me, to turn to me. Therefore, Forget the, the law. Exactly. <laughs> we'll start right here where you are. Mm-hmm. Isn't that beautiful? And isn't that what God always does with us?
3: Yeah.
0: We'll start yeah. right here where you are. It's, it's hard to see sometimes in the Hebrew Bible, but this is one of the best examples. Yes. Yes. So in uh, question three, in number 16, Korah, who was a Levite himself, And his buddies, Dothan and Abiram, and 250 other leaders of Israel uh, got jealous of Moses and Aaron and said, who do you think you are setting yourselves up and making the laws? We're just as good as you are, which pissed Moses off, by the way. But Moses went to the Lord and the Lord said, okay, just have them all come tomorrow morning and have them bring their censers. Those are the little things that incense is burned in, right? That goes into the, the the incense censers go into the holy place, which is the bigger room of the two part rooms inside the temple itself, right? There's a table of incense there and only the priests are allowed in there. So um, all the three ringleaders and their families show up with their censers uh, and Moses and Aaron show up with their censors, and, and the Lord makes it abundantly clear that he chose Moses and Aaron, Doth, the three ringleaders, Doth, uh, Korah, Dothan, and Abiram, they and their households are just like swallowed up by the earth. And all the other 250 leaders who had the audacity to enter in to where only the priests that the Lord appointed were to be were utterly burned to a crisp. Nothing, absolutely nothing left except the censers themselves. And at the end of that story, the Lord told Moses to have those censers gathered up because they were they were made holy at at the at the expense of those men's lives. Those men gave their life, you know, their lives, and all that was left was those censers, and those censers were holy and were ended and were to be put as like plating on the altar after that. So it's a it's a really deep layered story. So one... Story. Uh-huh. Is that fire that burned them up? Is that, was that a refining fire? It was a refining fire. Yes. <laughs> and there was nothing left but the scissors. <laughs> but the men came through it as holy on the other side of it. Even though they lost their lives, the Lord purified them. So maybe they only lost their bad lives. Exactly. That is exactly the point. The Lord is not about crushing us. The Lord is about dwelling with us. And to dwell with us, his very essence is holiness. We have to be holy. And the Lord makes a zillion ways for us to be holy. We've seen all different kind of ways, in the Hebrew Bible at least, of ways the Lord makes us holy in order to be with us. So why did so the you,
1: sorry, uh-huh. um, that just brings up a question then, you know, the 250 were purified in this way
0: mm-hmm.
1: and, and even what they were carrying was declared holy, but about the people that got swallowed up by the earth? Was that an image of just destruction period?
0: Yeah. At least in that culture, they view Sheol, the place of the dead as being kind of below. Um, and so I don't know. There is nothing else said in the in the Bible about that or about what that meant. Um, so it's open to interpretation. So I don't know the significance of that. I don't know if that's a cultural overlay. I don't know if it just means Sheol, um, place of the dead. I don't know. Um, so are these are the passages that people would look and be like, oh, that's hell. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. but it's not clearly, you know, hell isn't even in view here. Um, we're just talking about how the Lord is dealing with people. Why did the Lord deal differently with these people than with Hezekiah and the people in our story today?
3: I think it was intentions the the ones in Moses's time wanted to show that they were just as good as Moses or you know, their pride got in the way. And where Hezekiah and his people, even though they didn't know what they were doing, they were trying to say, Hey God, we trust you. We glory, give you the glory. Um, their intentions were totally different.
0: I think you're, you hit on a good word there. Um, a good way to look at it is who's getting the glory who's here. Right. Certainly these three and the 250, their issue was that Moses and Aaron had the glory. That's how they perceived it. And they felt like they were just as good, you know. So um, and we've touched on that before in classes that the, 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 the humility is the beginning of wisdom. I mean, the whole thing is about us recognizing that God is God and we are not um so the the next the next uh verse by woody we'll miss you um the the next question is out of uh, first chronicles 13 5 through 11 so this is where the philistines have captured the ark in battle because the israelites were dumb enough to carry it into battle as a talisman you know like kind of Raiders of the Lost art kind of thing. And and the art gets captured by the Philistines and and, uh, the Lord uh, causes all kinds of problems and plagues for the Philistines. And they finally figure out they need to return the Ark to the Israelites. And so they put it on a cart and they hook it up to some cows and there's a dramatic little story in there. But the end result is the Ark gets dragged back without a driver, gets dragged back to Israel and um so the and it stops in this guy's field and it stays there for a while and finally king david decides you know what we need to bring the ark all the way back so he you know goes out there and there's the whole entourage and there's some guys walking along um with the cart well the problem is the lord had set up specific ways to transport the ark that ark had like rings on the side of it for poles to go through and only, you know, these certain consecrated people could carry the Ark when it needed to move. So it would never drop. That's the point, you know, and nobody actually touched it. They just touched the poles and these were big long poles. And so, um, when, when the Philistines put the ark on this cart and then David had his men start bringing the cart to Jerusalem, I mean, they don't have asphalt. It fell. It got in a rut. It kind of tilted. The ark starts falling off and Uzzah reaches out his hand to study it. And the, it says the anger of the Lord burned against him and he calls down dead. So that doesn't sound like God to me. <laughs> and so that was one of the places where I said well I want to see what the underlying Hebrew says here so if you go look at the underlying Hebrew that is a correct translation you absolutely can translate it like this anger in um Hebrew is the same word as nose it's it's like a uh <laughs> like the flaring of the nostrils kind of thing you know and and uh and you could translate that to say the face of the lord burned him that's not the word for not the hebrew word for face that's a different word panin but the whole the the word for anger is no is 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 a face word and so um, um i would it makes more sense that the face of the lord burned him You know, he was still trying to help you know and boy David was really mad at him for this it's like uh, what what can I do how can I even do what you want if you're just going to burn people up like that you know um and David was mad at him for a long time after that why did the Lord respond this way what was different about this situation than Hezekiah in this instance the Lord had set out clear expectations to avoid being hurt in any way. He had provided a way for them to transport that ark. And yeah. they just went another direction and got sloppy with it. But, and that and- he wasn't tolerating. So the question is, how is that different from what happened with Hezekiah and the people when they didn't consecrate themselves? And, you know, what was
1: the does it have to do with, you know, this whole idea of the ark and the mercy seat being where God's presence is most present right. with That's the people thought. and that physically we can't absorb that
0: that makes which is a lot of sense only
1: to me. the priest only the priest the high priest could be in the presence of the ark once a year and had to have a rope tied around his ankle in case he died and they could pull didn't him out he have to do
0: that he didn't have to do that that's a myth that part's a myth but he did oh, okay. have to have he did have to have clouds of incense obscuring his view of so the he couldn't the ark. see yeah
1: and it almost makes me wonder if there was something like almost radioactive about <laughs> The arc, (laughs) you know, something along those lines that there was just this intense power that we, our physical form can't tolerate. And so even though Uzzah had good intention, it would be like, to take an analogy out of science fiction, when Spock went in to save the, the, um, the enterprise by going into the, the radioactive chamber and saved everybody, but died.
0: Right.
2: Well, one of the things we talked about too was that Azar, um, I mean, he he knew better. Whereas Hezekiah's people, I mean, they he's already been lenient with them because you know for not being fully consecrated. Because, I mean, they they were just getting back into this whole business, you know, after being away from it for 100 years. And so maybe he's like, okay, yeah. All right. You guys didn't get yourselves prepared the way you're supposed to. But I'm just so glad you're back with me again. We'll let it go this time. You know, however, (laughs) next time. You know know what? I think
0: that's an interesting point because the Philistines who loaded the Ark on the cart didn't drop dead.
2: No because they didn't know any better. They were they were ignorant. I think he, somebody used that word earlier in our discussion. But see, with these folks, I mean, um, you know, when they were, they weren't transporting the ark, but they were in there, and they were trying to get all this stuff done, and they didn't have everything done the way they were supposed to. So the Levites helped them out, because I don't know why the Levites were better prepared than the priests. But anyway, but they just, because they just, he's like, okay, I'm glad you're back with me. Don't let this happen again.
1: <laughs> yeah. So, I, do I we know if Uzzah? I think that, was, oh, sorry. Uh, just quick question. Do, do we know if Uzzah was a Levite?
0: No, I, I don't a remember that it gave us any information yeah, about. It him.
2: doesn't say that, but I kind of wondered if maybe he was also because he was so close to it.
0: Hmm. He, he was. He had, He was either a you know a, a particularly close like soldier to David. Or you know, close in terms of what you're talking about, right you know it it uh, doesn't it just gives his name, it doesn't give his
3: lineage, so we don't know oh, maybe it's because David and the Levites should have done what God said, put them on put it on poles and carried it out of took it out of the wagon, and carried it. Instead, they did it the easy way because it was already loaded in the wagon. Right. So when it tipped, it wouldn't have tipped if the people would have had it on poles, maybe. Right. And so they knew better. They knew what God, they were practicing at that time. It hadn't been 200 years. They were practicing and knew God's commandments concerning the ark. And they just ignored it because it was easier to leave it in a cart. And so... Even though he had good intentions, the consequences still had to be paid
0: well, I think I, I I might have might say, even though he had good intentions the re the reality of who God is needed to be preserved, that integrity needed to be preserved in the eyes of the people um, it It was very very important to the Lord that especially the leaders approach him and the tabernacle and all these things with the reverence and humility that would come from recognizing that this is where God is. And this is where God dwells. And if you think back, even Moses, um, when he Uh, got up in front of the people and he and Aaron and struck the rock and said, I'm going to make water come out of this rock. You know, the Lord was like, no, I'm the one who makes water come out of this rock. What you do in front of the people matters. What the leaders do in front of the people matters more than just regular people doing stuff. And it was for that incident that Moses was not able to enter the promised land. He, he died without entering the promised land. It was, it's a big deal. So being a leader of people, especially in the context of the Lord, is sobering. You need to make sure that you are not setting yourself up in God's place, that you're not getting in between the Lord and the people. You know, it's important that as a Bible teacher, I make sure to equip you to seek God yourself. I have to make sure that I am pointing you towards God and helping you find the shape of God and recognize how to tell truth from not truth and how to parse out the big messages, but I need to get out of the way. I need to exit the picture. Because the story is not about me. And so I think you've hit on exactly why the situation with Uzzah was different than the one with the people in Hezekiah. Because how did Hezekiah behave throughout the whole thing?
1: Kept going to God.
0: In front of the people. He didn't go somewhere else and ask the Lord to make it all right and then go out there and officiate. He made his and himself humble in front of the people.
2: Before and, and he, he acknowledged that this was to God's glory. Yeah, we're doing this for God, not for us. Yeah, he he
0: continued to say about the talk about the Lord
2: and that that this was the purpose of this.
0: Exactly. Exactly. So that's pretty much all I've got on this. Any other comments or observations that y'all had? All right, I think we've thank you, Gail. Absolutely, it was an easier class. Yay! (laughs) Thanks, everybody. Bye, bye. -bye. Take (laughs) Take care.